Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Welcome to the 358th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll continue with South with Scott by Edward Evans, and then we'll continue reading Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So let's head to that white continent. Chapter 8. The Winter Closes In The closing down of the polar night was very swift now, and the few hours of grey daylight were employed collecting what data was required by certain members for working on during the forthcoming days of darkness. Young Gran was handed over to me to help with the survey work and the astronomical observations, which had to be taken from time to time. He was a most entertaining assistant. Without complaint, he stood patiently shivering in that cutting winter wind whilst I swung around the theodolite telescope and took angles for him to write down in my notebook. I don't think anybody has made a triangulated survey under conditions worse than we endured that epoch. The weather was beastly and we spent much time dancing when nearly sick with cold, our fingers tucked under our arms to recover their feelings. When one's extremities did get frostbitten, it was no joke. Frostbitten fingertips gave us little peace at night with their sharp burning pain. The most interesting part of the survey work was what is known to the surveyor as coastlining. This meant walking along the edge of the sea ice, fixing one's position by sextant angle every 500 yards or so, and sketching in a notebook the character and features of the ever-changing coast between the various fixes. One could keep warm doing this, and one saw more of the land and ice formation than the others, for it meant following carefully round cape and glacier edge, penetrating inlets and delineating every islet, promontory, cliff and talus. In spite of the cold, the gloom, and the sad whistling wind that heralded the now fast-approaching darkness, I felt glad to work with my sextant and sketchbook under the shadow of those fantastic icefoots, hung round with fringes of icicle. I loved to go with Gran into the deep bays, and walk for miles under the overhanging of the vast ice cliffs, all purple in the reflection of the early winter noon, and to come out sometimes, as we did, on the sea ice, clear of a jutting glacier to face suddenly northward, over the frozen sea where nothing but a great waste of ice stretched away to meet the horizon and the rosy copper glow of the departed sun's rays. Some of the cloud effects at the end of April were too wonderful for mere pen and brush to describe. To appreciate them, one must go there and see them, those wonderful half-light tints. Then there were the ice caves and grottos, which were formed in the grounded icebergs that had overturned before we came, and the still more wonderful caves in the ice sheet where it overrode Ross Island and formed a cliff face between Cape Evans and Glacier Tongue, extraordinarily like the white chalk cliffs of Stutland Bay, I found them, and here and there outstanding pinnacles which a little imagination would liken to old Harry's rocks when the grey light was on them. At the most, we could only take sextant and theodolite angles for two hours on either side of noon, so Gran and I went without our lunch, taking a few biscuits and some chocolate out with us on our survey days. And as we worked further and further from our base, we found it necessary to start out in the darkness, in order to take full advantage of what light was vouchsafed us. It was a good healthy work, 
and we developed glorious appetite, so that our mouths ran with water when perhaps we met a couple of fellows leading the little white ponies on the sea ice for exercise, and they told us what they had had for lunch and what was being kept for us. We found it all most interesting, and although I detested that sunless winter, I loved the changing scenery, which never seemed monotonous when there was any daylight or moonlight. To mark our stations, we used red and black bunting flags, and they showed up very well. We gave them all sorts of weird names, such as sardine, shark, and so forth, and we knew almost to a yard their distances from one to another, as also their bearings, which helped us were we overtaken by bad weather. Eventually it became too dark for any survey work, but there was always plenty to do indoors for the majority of us. Apart from our specialist duties, someone was always to be found who could give employment to the willing. There were no idlers or unwilling folk amongst us. Simpson, for example, would employ as many volunteers as he could get to follow the balloons which he frequently sent up to record temperature and pressure. To each of these balloons, a fine silk thread was attached, or rather the thread was attached to the little instrument it carried. When any strain was put on the thread, it broke the thread connecting the small temperature and pressure instrument to the balloon. The former dropped to the ice and was recovered by one of the volunteers, who followed the silk thread up until it came to the instrument where it had fallen. One required good eyesight for this work, as for everything else down here, and I never ceased to marvel at the way Cherry Garrard got about and worked so well when one considers that he was very short-sighted indeed. Everybody exercised generously, whether by himself on ski, leading a pony, digging ice for the cook or ice to melt for the pony's drinking water, or even a whole crowd playing rather dangerous football on the sea ice north of Cape Evans. When the real winter came, I used to walk after winding the chronometers until breakfast time to begin with. This gave me half an hour. Then again, before lunch, I would put on ski and go for a run with everybody who had not a pony to exercise. The visibility was frequently limited, particularly on overcast days, when one would glide along over the sea ice which was in places windswept and in others covered with snow. Nothing in sight but the grey-white shadow underfoot and the black sky above, a streak or a band just a mere smudge of daylight to the north, but this would be sufficient to give one direction to go out on. Then, slowly, dim spectre-like shapes would appear which would gradually sort themselves out into two lots, black and white. These were Titus's ponies, the white shapes. The black were the men leading them. On they came, seemingly at a great pace, and one heard a crunching noise as the hooves of the ponies trod down the snow-crust, but one could not hear the footfalls of the men. One exchanged a hallo with the leading man, and passed on until a much bigger white shape loomed up in the obscurity of the noon twilight. The going underfoot changed and skis fetched up against a great lump of ice which was scarcely discernible in the confusing darkness, and one realised what little light there was to the northward had been blotted out by one of the big grounded icebergs. Directly one realised which berg it was, a new course would be shaped, say to the end of Barn Glacier. The cliffs of this reached one proceeded homeward, a league to the hut. This could not be missed on the darkest day if the coastline was followed, and at last, when stomach cried out like a striking clock, one realised it was 2pm or so, and a little glow indicated the whereabouts of the hut. Approaching it, 
one saw the tall chimney silhouetted against the sky. Then the black shapes, which oddly proclaimed themselves to be motor sledges, store heaps or fodder dumps, and finally the hut itself. One stumbled over the tide crack and up onto the much-trodden snow which covered Cape Evans's beach. Six or seven pairs of skis stuck in the snow near the hut door indicated that most people had come in to lunch, so there was no need to haste. Off came one's own skis, and with a lusty stab in they went heel downwards into the snow alongside the other ones, so that when a new fall came they would stand up vertically and be easily found again. The sticks one took into the hut, because even in our well-appointed family there were pirates who borrowed them and forgot to replace them. Entering the hut after kicking much snow from boots, one passed first through the acetine-smelling porch, Handy Andy's pride, as we called Day's gas plant, and then into the seamen's quarters, where the smell of cooking delighted and the sight of those great hefty sailors scoffing the midday meal hustled one still more. In the officer's half of the hut, most people were already busy with their knives and forks, two or three perhaps just sitting down. The night watchman, probably sitting up on the edge of his bunk, putting on his slippers, and cheerfully accepting the friendly insults from his pals at the table, who told him the date and year. Down went ski-sticks on the bed. Room would be made at the table and half a dozen dishes pushed your way. And although the mess traps were enamelled, the food you shuffled down from the tin plate and the cocoa you lapped from the blue and white mug had not its equal at the Carlton, the Ritz, or the Barclay. Concerning the night watchman and his duties, although we had so many self-recording instruments, there were certain things which called for attention during the silent hours. Aurora observations had to be made which no instrument would record. Movement of clouds had to be noted in the meteorological log. The snow had to be cleared from the anometer, and so forth. And then, of course, rounds had to be made in case of fire. Ponies and dogs had to be visited the galley fire lit or kept going according to requirements, and so on. The night watch-keeping duty was only undertaken by certain members chosen from the afterguard. Scott himself always took a share in this, as he did in everything else that mattered. One came to welcome the night on, for the attendant work was not very strenuous, and the eight hours' quietude gave the watchman a chance to write up a neglected diary, to wash clothes work out observations and perhaps make contributions to the South Polar Times, undisturbed by casual well-wishers who were not meant to see the article in question until the day of publication. We were allowed to choose from the stores more or less what we liked for consumption in the stillness of the night watch. I always contributed special china or salon tea for the benefit of the lonely watchman. I had two big canisters of the beverage, a present from one of our New Zealand well-wishers, Mrs. Arthur Rhodes of Christchurch, and these lasted the afterguard watchkeepers through the expedition. The auroras were a little disappointing this first winter, as seen from Cape Evans. They were certainly better than seen from the barrier. We only got golden bands and curtains splaying the heavens, except for one or two rare occasions, when there were distinct green rays low down amongst the shafts of weird light further from the zenith. In view of the possibility of a second winter, one kept a few letters going which contained a few little narratives of our work to date. We had most imposing notepaper which was used for the occasions. The crest consisted of a penguin standing on the South Pole with the Southern Hemisphere underfoot. 
A garter surrounding this little picture inscribed with British Antarctic Expedition Terra Nova, R-Y-S. Alas, some of the letters were never delivered, for death not only laid his hand upon certain members of the expedition, but also upon some of our older friends, supporters, and subscribers. One passed out of the hut hourly, at least, and on moonlight nights especially one found something beautiful in the scenery about Cape Evans. At full moon, everything turned silver, from towering Erebus with gleaming sides to the smooth ice slopes of Ross Island in the northeast, while away to the southward, the high black Delbridge Islands thrust up from a sea of flat silver ice. Even the conical hills and the majestic Castle Rock, fifteen miles away, stood out quite clearly on these occasions. The weirdest thing of all was to hear the dogs howling in the middle of the night. They made one think of wolves and of Siberia. All things considered, the winter passed quickly enough. We had three lectures a week, and our professional occupations, our recreations and different interests soon sped away the four months' winter darkness. The lectures embraced the technical and the practical side of the expedition. Thus, besides each of the scientific staff lecturing on his individual subject, Oates gave us two lectures on the care and management of horses. Scott outlined his plans for the great southern journey, giving probable dates and explaining the system of supporting parties which he proposed to employ. Ponting told us about Japan, and illustrated his subject with beautiful slides made from photographs that he himself had taken. Bowers lectured on Burma, until we longed to be there and Mears gave us a light but intensely interesting lecture on his adventures in the Lolo country, a practically unknown land in Central Asia. In connection with the work of Simpson at the base station, I must not forget the telephones. Certain telephones and equipment sufficient for our needs were presented to us in 1910 by the staff of the National Telephone Company, and they were largely used in scientific work at the base station as well as for connecting Cape Evans to Hut Point, 15 miles away. Simpson made the Cape Evans-Hut Point connection in September 1911 by laying the bare aluminium wire along the surface of the snow-covered sea ice, and for a long time there was no difficulty in ringing up by means of magnetos. However, when the sun came back, and its rays reasonably powerful, difficulty in ringing and speaking was experienced. We used the telephones almost daily for taking time, and Simpson used to stand inside the hut at the side reel clock whilst I took astronomical observations outside in the cold. We also telephoned time to the ice cave, in which the pendulums were being swung when determining the force of gravity. Telephones were quite efficient in temperatures of 40 degrees and more below zero. Midwinter day arrived on June the 22nd, and here one must pay an affectionate and grateful tribute to Bowers, Wilson, Cherry Garrard and Clissold, the cook. To start with, we had to discuss whether we would hold the midwinter festival on the 22nd or the 23rd of June, because in reality the sun reached its furthest northern declination at 2.30am on the 23rd, by the standard time which we were keeping. We decided to hold it on the evening of the 22nd, this being the dinner time nearest the actual culmination. A Bussard's cake, extravagantly iced, was placed on the tea table by Jerry Garrard, his gift to us, and this was the first of the dainties with which we proceeded to stuff ourselves on this memorable day. Although in England it was midsummer, we could not help thinking of those at home in Christmas vein. 
The day here was to all intents and purposes Christmas Day, and it meant a great deal more than that. It meant that the sun was to come speeding back slowly to begin with, and then faster and faster, until in another four months or so we should find ourselves setting out to achieve our various purposes. It meant that before another year had passed, some of us, perhaps all of us, would be back in civilization taking up again the reins of our ordinary careers, which of necessity would lead us to different corners of the earth. The probability was that we should never all sit down together in a peopled land, for Simpson was bound to be racing back to India with Bowers and probably Oates, whose regiment was now at Mao. Gran would be away to Norway, and the other Abdugs to Australia. One or two of us had been tempted to settle in New Zealand, and the old Antarctics amongst us knew how useless it had been to arrange these Antarctic dinners, which never came off as intended. But to return to the menu for midwinter day, when we sat down in the evening, we were confronted with a beautiful winter-colour drawing of our winter quarters, with Erebus's grey shadow looming large in the background, from the summit of which a rose-tinted smoke cloud delicately trended northward, and standing out from the whole picture, a neatly printed tablet, which proclaimed the nature of this much-looked-forward-to meal. Consomme seal, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, horseradish sauce, potatoes a la mode and Brussels sprouts, plum pudding, mince pies, caviar antarctic, crystallised fruits, chocolate bonbons, butter bonbons, walnut toffee, almonds and raisins, with wines, sherry, champagne, brandy punch, liqueur, Cigars, cigarettes and tobacco, snapdragon, pineapple custard, raspberry jellies, and what was left of Buzzard's cake. The menu was, needless to say, Wilson's work. The exquisite dishes Clissold produced, the maitre d'hôtel was Birdie, and Cherry Garrard the producer of surprises in the shape of toys, which adorned the Christmas tree that followed on that dinner. Everybody got something from that tree, which was in reality no tree at all, for it was a cleverly constructed dummy with sticks for branches and coloured paper leaves. Still, it carried a little fairy candle and served its purpose well. And then I must not forget the greatest treat of all. An exhibition of slides showing the life about our winter quarters and the general work of the expedition from the starting away in New Zealand to this actual day almost in the hut. The slides were wonderful, and they showed every stage of the ice through which we had come and in which we lived. There were penguin pictures, whales and seals, bird life in the pack, flashlight photographs of people and ponies, pictures of Erebus and other splendid and familiar landmarks, and in short, a magnificent pictorial record of the events, for Ponting had been everywhere with his camera, and it is only to be regretted that the expedition did not take him to the pole. This was, of course, impossible, when everything had to give way to food. Following the photographic display and the Christmas tree came the only Antarctic dance we enjoyed. Few of us remember much about it, for we were very merry thanks to the wine, and there was considerable horseplay. I remember dancing with the cook whilst Oates danced with Anton. Everybody took a turn and associated with this dance. I might mention that Clissold so far forgot himself as to call Scott good old Trueck. Chuik was the composition used by us for cooking in various ways omelettes, buttered eggs, puddings and cakes of all kinds. And although it was a great boon to the expedition, we had by this time tired of it. 
Still, we used it as a term of endearment, but nobody in his sober senses would have dreamt of calling our much-respected commander good old Trueg. The brandy punch must have been responsible for Clissold's mixing up of names. We had now arrived at the stage when it was time to shut up. The officers became interested in the aurora display and gradually rolled off to bed. It was left to me to see the seamen turned in. They were good-humoured but obstreperous, and not until 2am did silence and order once more reign in the hut. Very wisely, our leader decided on June 23rd being kept as a day of rest. Our digestions were upset and we took the time off to make amend clothes and returned to our winter routine, a little subdued perhaps on June the 24th. And now, it's dream time. Much of the Great Ones might be learnt in such regions, and those with their blood might inherit little memories very useful to a seeker. They might not know their parentage, for the gods so dislike to be known among men that none can be found who had seen their faces wittingly, a thing which Carter realised even as he sought to scale Kadath. But they would have lofty queer thoughts, misunderstood by their fellows, and would sing of far places and gardens so unlike any known in the dreamland that common folk would call them fools. And from all this one could perhaps learn old secrets of Kadath, or gain hints of the marvellous sunset city which the gods held secret. And more, one might, in certain cases, seize some well-loved child of a god as hostage, or even capture some young god himself disguised and dwelling amongst men with a comely peasant maiden as his bride. Atel, however, did not know how to find Gran Ek, or its Isle of Oriap and recommended that Carter follow the singing sky under its bridges down to the southern sea, where no Burgess of Ulthar had ever been, but whence the merchants come in boats, or with long caravans of mules and two-wheeled cars. There is a great city there, Dilath Lean, but in Ulthar its reputation is bad, because of the three banked galleys that sail to it with rubies from no clearly named shore. The traders that come from those galleys to deal with the jewellers are human, or nearly so. But the rowers are never beheld, and it is not thought wholesome in Ulthar that merchants should trade with black ships from unknown places, whose rowers cannot be exhibited. By the time he had given this information, Atal was very drowsy, and Carter laid him gently on a couch of inlaid ebony and gathered his long beard decorously on his chest. As he turned to go, he observed that no suppressed fluttering followed him, and wondered why the Zoogs had become so lax in their curious pursuit. Then he noticed all the sleek, complacent cats of Ulthar licking their chops with unusual gusto, and recalled the spitting and the caterwauling he'd faintly heard in lower parts of the temple while absorbed in the old priest's conversation. He recalled, too, the evilly hungry way in which an especially imprudent young Zug had regarded a small black kitten in the cobbled street outside. And because he loved nothing on earth more than small black kittens, he stooped and petted the sleek cats of Ulthar as they licked their chops and did not mourn because those inquisitive Zugs would escort him no further. It was sunset now, 
So Carter stopped at an ancient inn on a steep little street overlooking the lower town. And as he went out on the balcony of his room, and gazed down at the sea of red-tiled roofs and cobbled ways, and the pleasant fields beyond, all mellow and magical in the slanted light, he swore that Ulfa would be a very likely place to dwell in always, were not the memory of a greater sunset city still ever goading one onward towards unknown perils. Then twilight fell, and the pink walls of the plastered gables turned violet and mystic, and little yellow lights floated up one by one from old lattice windows. A sweet bells pealed in. The temple tower above and the first star winked softly above the meadows across the sky. With the night came song, and Carter nodded as the lutenists praised ancient days from beyond the filigreed balconies and the tessellated courts of simple Ulthar. And there might have been sweetness even in the voices of Ulthar's many cats, but that they were mostly heavy and silent from strange feasting. Some of them stole off to those cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and which, villagers say, are on the moon's dark side, whither the cats leap from tall housetops, but one small black kitten crept upstairs and sprang into Carter's lap to purr and to play, and curled up near his feet when he lay down at last on the little couch whose pillows were stuffed with fragrant drowsy herbs. In the morning, Carter joined a caravan of merchants bound for Dileth Lean, and the spun wool of Ulthar and the cabbages of Ulthar's busy farms, and for six days they rode with tinkling bells on the smooth road beside the sky, stopping some nights at the inns of little quaint fishing towns, and on other nights camping under the stars while snatches of boatsmen's songs came from the placid river. The country was very beautiful with green hedges and groves and picturesque peaked cottages and octagonal windmills. On the seventh day, a blur of smoke rose on the horizon ahead, and then the tall black towers of Dilathleen, which is built mostly of basalt. Dilathleen, with its thin angular towers, looks in the distance like a bit of a giant's causeway, and its towers are dark and uninviting. There are many dismal sea taverns along the myriad wharves, and all the town is thronged with the strange seamen of every land on earth, and of a few which are said to be not of earth. Carter questioned the oddly robed men of that city about the peak of Granek on the isle of Oriab, and found that they knew of it well. Ships came from Bahana on that island, one being due to return thither in only a month and Granek is but two days' zebra ride from that port. But few had seen the stone face of the god, because it is on a very difficult side of Granek, which overlooks only sheer crags and a valley of sinister lava. Once the gods were angered with men on that side, and spoke of the matter to other gods. It was hard to get this information from sailors and traders in Dilathleen's sea taverns, because they mostly preferred to whisper of the black galleys. One of them was due in a week with rubies from its unknown shore, and the townsfolk dreaded to see it dock. The mouths of the men who came from it to trade were too wide, and the way their turbans were humped up in two points above their foreheads was in especially bad taste, and their shoes were of the shortest and queerest ever seen in the Six Kingdoms. But worst of all, was the matter of the unseen rowers. 
Those three banks of oars moved too briskly and accurately and vigorously to be comfortable. And it was not right for a ship to stay in port for weeks while the merchants traded, yet to give no glimpse of its crew. It was not fair to the tavern-keepers of Dilath Lean, or to the grocers and butchers either, for not a scrap of provisions was ever sent aboard. The merchants took only gold and stout black slaves from Parg across the river. That was all they ever took, those unpleasantly featured merchants and their unseen rowers. Never anything from the butchers and the grocers, and only gold and the fat black men of Parg whom they brought by the pound. And the odours from those galleys, which the south wind blew in from the wharves, are not to be described. Only by constantly smoking strong thagweed could even the hardiest denzin of the old sea taverns bear them. Dilath Lean would never have tolerated the black galleys, had such rubies been obtainable elsewhere. But no mine in all of Bath's dreamland was known to produce their like. Of these things, Dilath Lean's cosmopolitan folk chiefly gossiped while Carter waited patiently for the ship from Bahana, which might bear him to the isle whereon Carven Granic towers lofty and barren. Meanwhile, he did not fall to seek through the haunts of far travellers for any tales they might have concerning Cadath in the cold waste, or a marvellous city of marble walls and silver fountains seen below terraces in the sunset. Of these things, however, he learned nothing, though he once thought that a certain old slant-eyed merchant looked queerly intelligent when the cold waste was spoken of. This man was reputed to trade with the horrible stone villages on the icy desert plateau of Leng, which no healthy folk visit, and whose evil fires are seen at night from afar. He was even rumoured to have dealt with that high priest not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face, and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery that such a person might well have had nibbling traffic with such beings, as well may conceivably dwell in the cold waste, was not to be doubted. But Carter soon found that it was no use questioning him. Then the black galley slipped into the harbour, past the basalt wall and the tall lighthouse, silent and alien, and with a strange stench that the south wind drove into the town. Uneasiness rustled through the taverns along the waterfront, and after a while the dark, wide-mouthed merchants with humped turbans and short feet clumped stealthily ashore to seek the bazaars of the jewellers. Carter observed them closely, and disliked them more the longer he looked at them. Then he saw them drive the stout black men of Parg up the gangplank, grunting and sweating into that singular galley, and wondered in what lands, or if in any lands at all, those fat, pathetic creatures might be destined to serve. And on the third evening of that galley's stay, one of the uncomfortable merchants spoke to him, smirking sinfully and hinting of what he had heard in the taverns of Carter's Quest. He appeared to have knowledge too secret for public telling, and although the sound of his voice was unbearably hateful, Carter felt that the law of so far a traveller must not be overlooked. He bade him, therefore, be his guest in locked chambers above, and drew out the last of the Zug's moonwine to loosen his tongue. The strange merchant drank heavily, but smirked unchanged by the draught. Then he drew forth a curious bottle, with wine of his own, 
and Carter saw that the bottle was a single hollowed ruby, grotesquely carved in patterns too fabulous to be comprehended. He offered wine to his host, and though Carter took only the least sip, he felt the dizziness of space and the fever of unimagined jungles. All the while the guest had been smiling more and more broadly, and as Carter slipped into blankness, the last thing he saw was that dark, odious face convulsed with evil laughter, and something quite unspeakable where one of the two frontal puffs of that orange turban had been disarranged with the shakings of that epileptic mirth. Carter next had consciousness, amidst horrible odours beneath a tent-like awning on the deck of a ship, with the marvellous coasts of the southern sea flying by in unnatural swiftness. He was not chained, but three of the dark sardonic merchants stood grinning nearby, and the sight of those humps in their turbans made him almost as faint as did the stench that filtered up through the sinister hatches. He saw slip past him, the glorious lands of cities of which fellow dreamers of earth, a lighthouse keeper in ancient Kingsport, had often discoursed in the old days, and recognised the templed terraces of Zack, abode of forgotten dreams, also the spires of infamous Tharlarion, that daemon city of a thousand wonders where the El de Leon Lathai reigns, the charnel gardens of Zura, lands of pleasure unattained, and the twin headlands of crystal, meeting above in a resplendent arch which guard the harbour of Sona Nile, blessed land of fancy. Past all these gorgeous lands the melodious ship flew unwholesomely, urged by the abnormal strokes of those unseen rowers below. And before the day was done, Carter saw that the steersman could have no other goal than the basalt pillars of the west, beyond which simple folk say splendid Cathuria lies but which wise dreamers know well are the gates of a monstrous cataract, wherein the oceans of Earth's dreamland drop wholly to abysmal nothingness, and shoot through the empty spaces towards other worlds, and to other stars, and to the awful voids outside the ordered universe where the daemon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in chaos amid the pounding and piping of the hellish dancing of the other gods, blind and voiceless, tenebrous and mindless, with their soul and messenger, Nyarlathrotep. Meanwhile, the three sardonic merchants would give no word of their intent, though Carter knew well that they must be leagued with those who wished to hold him from his quest. It is understood in the land of dreams that the other gods have many agents moving among men, and all these agents, whether wholly human or slightly less than human, are eager to work the will of those blind and mindless things in return for the favour of their hideous soul and messenger, the crawling chaos, Nyarlathrotep. So Carter inferred that the merchants of the humped turbans, hearing of his daring search for the Great Ones in their castle of Kadath, had decided to take him away and deliver him to Nyarlathrotep for whatever nameless bounty might be offered for such a prize what might be outside the land of those merchants, in the other known universe, or in the eldritch spaces outside, Carter could not guess. Nor could he imagine at what hellish tri-string place they would meet the crawling chaos to give him up and to claim their reward. He knew, however, that no beings as nearly human as those would dare approach the ultimate knighted throne of the daemon Azathoth in the formless central void. At the set of the sun, the merchants licked their excessively wide lips, 
and glared hungrily, and one of them went below and returned from some hidden and offensive cabin with a pot and basket of plates. Then they squatted close together beneath the awning and ate the smoking meat that was passed around. But when they gave Carter a portion, he found something very terrible in the size and shape of it, so that he turned even paler than before and cast that portion into the sea when no eye was on him. And again he thought of those unseen rowers beneath, and of the suspicious nourishment from which their far too mechanical strength was derived. It was dark when the galley passed betwixt the basalt pillars of the west, and the sound of the ultimate cataract swelled portentous from ahead. And the spray of that cataract rose to obscure the stars, and the deck grew damp, and the vessel reeled in a surging current on the brink. Then with a queer whistle and a plunge the leap was taken, and Carter felt the terrors of nightmare as earth fell away, and the great boat shot silent and comet-like into planetary space. Never before had he known what shapeless black things lurk and caper and flounder all through the ether, leering and grinning at such voyages as may pass, and sometimes feeling about with slimy paws when some moving object excites their curiosity. These are the nameless larvae of other gods, and like them are blind and without mind, and possessed of a singular hunger and thirst. But that offensive galley did not aim as far as Carter had feared, for he soon saw that the helmsman was steering a course directly for the moon. The moon was a crescent shining larger and larger as they approached it, and showing its singular craters and peaks uncomfortably. The ship made for the edge, and it soon became clear that its destination was that secret and mysterious side which is always turned away from earth, and which no fully human person, save perhaps the dreamer Sneerith Ko, had ever beheld. The close aspect of the moon was as the galley drew near proved very disturbing to Carter, and he did not like the size and the shape of the ruins which crumbled here and there. The dead temples on the mountains were so placed that they could have glorified no suitable or wholesome gods, and in the symmetries of the broken columns there seemed to be some dark and inner meaning which did not invite solution and what the structure and the proportions of the olden worshippers could have been, Carter surely refused to conjecture. When the ship rounded the edge, and sailed over those lands unseen by man, there appeared in the queer landscape certain signs of life, and Carter saw many low, broad, round cottages in fields of grotesque whitish fungi. He noticed that the cottages had no windows, and thought that their shape suggested the huts of Eskimo. Then he glimpsed the oily waves of a sluggish sea, and knew that the voyage was once more to be by water, or at least through some liquid. The galley struck the surface with a peculiar sound, and the odd elastic way the waves received it was very perplexing to Carter. They now slid along at a great speed, once passing and hailing another galley of kindred form but generally seeing nothing but that curious sea and a sky that was black and star-strewn, even though the sun shone scorchingly in it. There presently arose, now ahead, the jagged hills of a leprous-looking coast, and Carter saw the thick unpleasant grey towers of a city. The way they leaned and bent 
the manner in which they were clustered, and the fact that they had no windows at all, was very disturbing to the prisoner, and he bitterly mourned the folly which had made him sip the curious wine of that merchant with the humped turban. As the coast drew nearer, and the hideous stench of that city grew stronger, he saw upon the jagged hills many forests, some of whose trees he recognised as akin to that solitary moon-tree in the enchanted wood of earth, from whose sap the small brown zoogs ferment their curious wine. And that's all for today, except to remind you about my Patreon account where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast as separate and individual MP3s, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a naval history on the War of 1812, Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, a science fiction novel, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US's decision-making on the war in Vietnam. And as a bit of a side job, I'm also narrating the full rules to the role-playing game simply called Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game. Please, go to patreon.com and search for Felbrig. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. So, until next time...